0: Welcome to the Exit Point Podcast. I'm Laurent Fratt and with me is Matt Blank. And today we're speaking with Chris Burns, who is a super talented wingsuit base jump pilot. And uh, we're here to talk to him about a few things today. One, he is a very successful, competitive wingsuit skydiver and base jumper. We want to talk to him a little bit about his competition record and what it took to get there. And lately, he's been opening some super spicy wingsuit points, and um, he's just a super stoked dude whose excitement is contagious, and um, we're really looking forward to talking today about that. Um, Matt, you don't know Chris personally. Um, What are some of the things that you're interested in talking about with him today?
1: Well, first and foremost, I'd love to talk to him about what it means to be a good wingsuiter. In the past, that's been pretty subjective, and now with things like Sky Derby, which are putting down metrics and categories to try and define what a good wingsuiter is, I'd like to talk to him about how he perceives those quantifiable metrics, since he is the one that is topping the charts in almost every category. I'd also like to talk to him about what tools and techniques he's using to train, uh, because honestly uh, it'd be nice to give some information to people who are trying to get to that level Uh, and certainly as somebody that is consistent as him at uh, being excellent in the sport he's he must have some tips and tricks that we can pass on to the next generation and then lastly I would love to talk to him about his life philosophy people that are at the cutting edge like him flying these epic lines I usually have an interesting life perspective that allows them to push into these you know zones where a lot of people didn't come back from and so if you've uh you know engaged with him at all on social media as green flying dude you'll have seen that he's flying some of the most epic lines that anyone has ever done and uh, i'd like to know what he thinks about life in general and how he's able to reconcile all of the risk that it takes uh, to fly those lines Great. I
0: think we're all on the same page here. Uh, this is going to be an exciting episode and I'm looking forward to chatting with Chris. Hey, Chris. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. So we brought you on to the podcast for a few reasons. Uh, you're a ferocious competitor, both in the base jumping and skydiving environment. Um, and you've been uh, opening up some spicy exit points lately, and you're just absolutely slaying it in the terrain flying domain as well. So um, what we've done is we brought you on um, to talk a little bit about what it takes um, and what it means to be a good wingsuit base jumper. And um, I think that you have sort of the same philosophy that we do and, and you're in it for the right reasons as far as like helping out the community and spreading positive information and helping others along the way like you know the, we leaned on the mentors that we have and and now we're sort of giving back and and i know that you feel really strongly about helping people so um thanks for coming on and um let's let's do it
1: yeah let's jump in right away with uh i'd like to know right off the bat how you came up with the measurements to understand what good is. Because when I came up in wingsuit base and skydiving, uh, you know, wingsuit skydiving, it was pretty subjective who was good and who was not good. So first question, how did you come up with these metrics?
2: Well, I think like on a completely base level, like what makes the best base jumper is whoever's getting out of it what they want. So, you know, if somebody's doing one jump from high nose and not even packing and smashing beers and they get to uh, talk to chicks and say they're a base jumper, like they're better than, in my mind, than the person that is disappointed because they only got eight jumps in the day instead of 10. So regardless of what level you get to with uh, terrain or exits or competitions, like if you're not enjoying it, I don't think that that's, you know, like, That that's for me in, at least in my mind, as long as I'm enjoying it, I'll keep, keep pushing it like that's on a base level, uh, as a foundation, but then for the actual performance metrics, then it starts with the, for me, it started with the skydiving wingsuit performance flying format. Now that was a PPC competition, correct? Yeah. And I was super lucky because when on my drop zone, I had about a hundred skydives and I uh, bought a tracking suit and then, um, at my drop zone, they were like, oh, okay, you've got a tracking suit, go talk to this guy. And he was a base jumper. And I got introduced to the fly site GPS unit straight away. And then the next weekend I was competing in the Australian nationals in the tracking suit, flying the fly site. Um, and so I was introduced to that, that, uh, Performance flying format straight away, and what that gave me was uh, measured progress. So I was able to have uh, personal bests. So in that very first competition, I remember in the first round, I'll distance. You got to fly as fast as, as far as you can, and I got like say uh, seven hundred meters over one kilometer of altitude. And then in the next round, it was a, a speed round. So I, I flew a bit steeper and went a bit faster. But when I looked at the data, I saw that I'd flown. In that speed round, I'd flown 1.3 kilometers, and I was like, oh, actually I'm getting better drive from that angle. In the first one, I was a bit flatter. And so it just, from the beginning, gave me that um, feedback. And I was able to, through trial and error, just continue to measure my progress and um, be able to improve.
1: So rather than shooting for certain numbers, what you were training towards in the beginning was just improving your metrics little by little. So without any reference point, just seeing if you could best yourself. Exactly. Because
2: uh, the competition's only with yourself, really, and uh, like I'm the youngest of 11 children and uh, I grew up in a big family and so I'm naturally competitive. And so for me to be able to have like uh, a personal best, it's, it's measured progress. So, you know, and it's a good feeling, you know, if you fly uh, longer than one kilometer for the first time or then like, oh, you know, like 1.3 and then two kilometers and it sort of encourages you and gives you direct feedback
0: on what you're doing and how, whether that's better or worse for your results. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, like one of the things that I was talking to uh, with Matt about uh, before you came on was how, uh, you know, uh, progression is really like a key a uh, ingredient for all of us to get a sense of enjoyment and satisfaction out of base. And, you know, one direction uh, can be um, these online competitions. And, and what we're talking about now is uh, Sky Derby. And uh, I know that's something that you're very active with right now. Can you tell us a little bit, like, what is Sky Derby? Sky Derby, I guess, is like the
2: Strava of wingsuiting and tracking. So it's a platform where you can upload your GPS data, and you can have a look at uh, graphs. You can compare it to um, terrain profiles, and then the the tracks as you upload them, you can look at the graphs of your speed versus your glide. But then it'll, if you make the track public, it'll automatically upload it into these various online competitions, and that's great because then you can see how you do compared to other people. You can uh, it keeps track of your personal bests, and then you. Uh, can see because a lot of the people that I see like preparing for base they might do a lot of two ways and things like that and they might be like oh well I smoked that guy so I'm flying fast but they might have exited the plane a little bit sooner or it's a bit harder to react to somebody else's body movements and um, fly to them whereas if you're in a competition or an online competition and another person in a similar or the same suit to you is flying a kilometer further you're like oh well what are they doing differently compared to what i'm doing
0: and i think what does that, that the most what does that look like, like um from like a practical perspective so like you're at the exit point you turn on your fly sight, you know it's starting to blink you know you got signal and then are you in that moment thinking oh, okay like i want to fit into this category or i want to try to like there's different formats, right? So you want to be like, there's the the feather competition or tell us a little bit about like how, you know which category you're looking at and, and how someone can can get into it and, and sort of the, the format there specifically.
2: Yeah, for sure. So there's lots of different um, online competitions. Like you mentioned the feather challenge and that measures how far horizontally you can fly in the first 200 meters of altitude from the exit. And that's really useful for being able to, um, like, notice the difference from thermal lift or sinking air or tailwinds versus headwinds. And it's a really good tool to be able to analyse. Then getting into shorter starts, what is and isn't within your skill set. Um, but um, there's like uh, distance and speed flying competitions and there's skydiving competitions and there's a lot of different, um, ways that you can look at the data and be able to, uh, help that
0: in making you a better flyer in the base environment. Have have you seen this, uh, have you seen this, uh, format, Matt? It's, it's called the feather challenge. I mean, it's legit, like basically online competition about who starts the fastest. So like not only, are you getting the numbers exactly of, like, the, your performance, but also, like, how you're, you know, competing and, and how you rank up against other people in different suits, different exit points, you know, different uh, uh, weather situations, I would imagine. Um, so, like, you know, you're at the top of that level. You, you are legit, like, good at starting your wingsuit.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's something new for me. Um, I have a question about that. you know it it sounds it sounds like what you're saying is that this is a competition, but it's also just a way of us to see who might have come up with an aha moment in wingsuiting. Who has maybe unlocked one of the keys? And so the question for you is, you know, are there is there a lot of sharing of information at the top? Like if I go to Dennis Olson and say like man, you you've set nearly a 200 mile an hour speed run horizontally. Like how did you do that? Is there a lot of uh, sharing of information about stuff like that?
2: Yeah, a hundred percent. In all the competitions that I've gone to within base, it's a very friendly environment for sharing information. And even if the person isn't conductive towards sharing information, the graph of their GPS or their run is public. So that's what I've been able to do is like learn from other people's GPS tracks about, like I can see from looking at their graphs, what they're doing. And then they can look at my graphs and see what I'm doing. And it's like, we're pushing the sport forward together. And maybe competition isn't the right word to use because you don't have to be competitive. A lot of people don't like competition, but what it gives you is measured progress. And like that's, such a good thing to be able to progress in the sport and to be safe. So even if you're not interested in competition at all, this is such a good way of being able to, at the end of the day, be safer in the base environment because you're understanding the range of your wingsuit or your tracking suit and you know the envelope within which you
1: can fly in the mountains. It sounds like this competition is actually more of a collaboration between the top flyers. and the ranking is just to identify who might have uh, information relevant to everybody else. Maybe you can uh, kind of fill in the gaps here. How do people collaborate on this platform to improve their flying specifically? Like you said, we look at the track, but then what information do we glean from that specifically to improve our flying?
2: Well, uh, one of the challenges is called the Kings and Queens challenge, and that's uh, basically wherever you finish up after 30 seconds, it's drawn in a straight line from there back to the exit and what that distance is. So it's um, basically how far away can you get from the exit in 30 seconds. So it's a balance between like flying glidy, which makes it the shortest distance between A and B. But if you fly steeper, you can build more energy, but you're taking a longer path to get to that point and what it is it's perfect because it's training for world suit league, league or world base race where the finish line is a vertical wall that you're flying through so if you fly steeper you'll be able to build more energy but if you fly glidier you're reducing that distance in a to b but through the tracks and specifically with a really good friend of mine Yegor Orlo what I learned what I learned from his tracks is you can start gliding, but then as you reach one to one, you're tipping your angle forwards and you're reducing, oh sorry, you're extending the amount of time that it takes you to go through glide ratios, depending on your suit. But for race suits, usually about from one to one through to 1.8 to one, which is allowing you to accelerate for longer. And so that way you get the best of both worlds. You're flying that shortest distance A to B, but then you're extending that amount of time that I call it the acceleration zone, where you're going through those glide ratios of your suit, where you're building that super terminal speed, and super terminal is one of the original, if not the first, uh, proximity flying videos that came out from the Norwegians back in the day, and that was that term. Is that a lot of people, um, you know, and it might be because of the feather challenge or they like flying floaty, they. They hop off and they they never reach the full speed potential that their wingsuit has available. And um, you know a woofo or somebody that doesn't jump, they might say, "Oh, what's terminal velocity?" And you you can say, "Oh, well, if you're flying at a, at a tandem or something, you might be going about 200 kilometers an hour, or if you go head down, you might be flying about 300." But it's a balance between the amount of surface area that you present to the air and the amount of air that's there to hit you. So there, there sort of is no thing, such thing as terminal velocity because it's always a dynamic relationship. You know, The higher that you go in altitude, the thinner the air is and the faster you can accelerate. And then based upon your inputs, especially in the wingsuit, every input you make you're sacrificing drag for control. So the more that you can reduce the surface area that you're presenting to the air and the more that you can adjust your body flying to be able to do smaller and smoother and more refined inputs, then you're presenting less drag and you can build that super terminal speed. And it's um, just from watching those videos and speaking to some of the Norwegians, it really um, changed my perspective. And that's really helped me to be able to to build these really high speeds on base jumps.
0: What, what I'm hearing from you here is that uh, the best strategy for the Kings and Queens challenge is to start off, get a good start, and then progressively fly faster and faster and faster. So you're accelerating throughout your entire flight. Um, maybe you, like, let's say we're both standing at the exit point and i want to go and, and, and do a, a good run. Um, what sort of, visual references would you suggest? Should I be looking at a certain angle? Should I just be thinking about how I feel the air on my body? What does that maximum speed uh, feel like in your wingsuit? Like are, are you almost falling over the handlebars? Are, are you, uh, how steep does the angle? Should it feel? like? What are some of the things like that come off in your brain where like, oh, I'm, I'm going real fast right now? Yeah, the really useful thing with this and the beautiful thing about it as well
2: is that it depends on the exit point that you jump from. So every cliff, you've got a a usable amount of terrain that you can use to build speed. So some places like um, at Brento, you can't fly too fast and even they made a a different challenge at Brento for a 25 second speed race because people were chasing the dragon on the 30 second speed races and, and pulling low over the landing area. And uh, even now to do as at Saspadoy, which is a really popular place for doing the sky derby runs because the gondola goes directly to the exit point And it is uh, the exits at roughly 2,900 meters of altitude. So you've got a little bit of thinner air, which helps with less drag. But even there, when you're doing really good runs, like you're, you're bottoming out on the treetops and you're using the flare to be able to have a safe canopy flight. and um, but for the flight during that thing, like when you're build when you building that super terminal speed, the wingsuit want, like it, it's you're, you're tipping your angle steeper. So you're forcing the wingsuit down because as you're building that speed, it's increasing your glide. And, and then even just the, the subtlest movement of flattening out, you'll go from like 1.3 to, to two and a half, like nothing. So that's where it's almost the feeling is, is like you're trying to hide your whole body behind the leading edge. And you're trying to almost force the wingsuit to fly a little bit steeper, but what you're actually doing is stopping it with all of that speed from driving out into a flatter angle, which will slow you down.
0: You're fighting against the lift. That's a really good explanation that you had, by the way. You're trying to hide your body behind the leading edge. That's a really good way of putting it. Is is there any other um, body configuration tips that you may have as far as like what are you doing with your shoulders? What are you doing? Is are you thinking about your shoulders in your head or? Is that something that just sort of comes naturally, uh, give us a couple more tips as far as like your body configuration and how to fly fast.
2: Well, I think generally within the community, people focus too much on their body articulation because it comes secondary to following the right curve. So you could fly like with, with bent legs and a lot of dihedral, but if you follow a good curve, you're going to get faster speeds. And that's what I see at world wingsuit league. I see people flying with like really aggressive anhedral um, configurations and like super duper like strong people um but their their body articulation is is perfect but they're, they're they're flattening out too
0: soon and they're not carrying that speed through those angles so Can there is just jumping things- sorry a quick description for uh the people who may have less experience dihedral and anhedral Di- dihedral would be a more balanced position with your center of gravity lower than uh, your wrists, and uh, then uh, the opposite anhedral would be your wrists and uh, being below uh, your center of mass or or center of gravity. Yeah, anhedral arms down and uh,
2: dihedral arms up a little bit. So uh, for me personally, I just like to try and keep my arms level, Um, but little things as well. Like for example, when I used to fly um, I used to be pointing my toes so hard that I would get cramps in my calves. But then when I looked at outside video of other people that were flying with me, I could see that I had a bend from my hips to my knees to my foot. And so from there, I started focusing on tensing my quads to lock my knee. And when you do tense your quad and lock your knee, you you've, you don't have to tense your calf, you can have your point your foot pointed with a relaxed calf. But that um, tensing of the quad and straightening of the leg, you can lose leverage from your core and it's helping to suck your body off the bottom surface of the wing. And a lot of people talk about getting instability and a, a, a word that I hear or a phrase that I hear a lot is people saying, oh, you know, I can feel the air coming over the top of the wing and I get unstable. And there's always air coming over the top of the wing, but what they're actually feeling and talking about is that they're they're doing that, they're sucking their body off the bottom surface of the wingsuit and they're removing a control surface that they're always used to relying on and then they get unstable. And it's not that there's air coming over the wing and that that's making them unstable, they just need to get used to flying on a smaller control surface.
0: I think that control surface is called the point of deflection, is it not?
2: Um, I'm not too sure on the exact terminology with a lot of this stuff because the whole thing for my progression has just been sort of trial and error. So I sort of, um, do something in a different way and then I see how that feels and then I see how the results are. And then I slowly through trial and error, see what works and what doesn't.
1: Yeah. Well, vocabulary or not, it's working. And Laurent, I think you're uh, talking about the point of stagnation is what I've heard that referred to as, and, uh, If we're flying let's say flat and really dirty uh, the point of stagnation is going to be somewhere around our chest and that's a really flat surface that we're used to feeling relative airflow and so a lot of people feel like they're in control there but as we uh, do what chris is saying and start hiding our body behind the leading edge that point of stagnation becomes a very small point on a convex surface And if you're not used to focusing on that small point and you're used to having, you know, your chest or your midsection as this uh, deflection point, then it can feel eerie. Like there's nothing at all, like there's no relative air to push against.
2: Yeah, it's like you're burbling your body and you're you're riding the knife edge of um, hiding your surface area behind your leading edge. And... um, a lot of people like get discouraged, you know, they go like, oh, I got unstable. And like the, I, I find with coaching or giving people feedback is that like positive reinforcement works. And, and the fact of the matter is, man, you don't get speed wobbles unless you are going fast. So it's a positive thing. And then over time you'll learn to feel the control at those angles and you won't get the speed wobbles, but you have to push your limits to progress. And that's why it's good to do it in a safe environment within skydiving so that then, then that way, when you approach base, you know your range and you're never flying your suit at angles or doing maneuvers that you haven't done in the sky. So you're not gonna be approaching a point where you're gonna be losing control low over the terrain or in a base environment.
1: Well, we wanna get into how you've trained in the skydiving world to progress your base. Uh, But before we do, I'd like to go back to something that you just said, uh, and it is that the curve or the trajectory, if I'm understanding that correctly, that you're taking off of the exit point is more important than the body position that you take. And if you could expand on that for just a second, I'd love to hear your thoughts because You know, a lot of people focus on that perfect body position, and it sounded like what you just said was, it's more important the trajectory that you find. You can be in an inefficient body position as long as you have a smooth trajectory, or you can have, you know, a great trajectory and uh, still, um, what do I want to say? You can have great body position, efficient body position with the wrong trajectory, and it can be terrible. Uh, Or you can have great trajectory and it doesn't matter what body position you have because um, that trajectory is most important.
2: Yeah. So obviously the ideal thing is to have a a good trajectory and good body articulation as well, but there's no point having excellent body articulation if you flatten out too early. So it's understanding all of the pieces of the puzzle um, and how that all works together. And It's the same as like, say, something like with packing. It's no point taking half an hour flaking the canopy perfectly if you're only messing up that work by putting it into the container messily. You've got to understand like the foundations of things that build towards performance and the order in which that goes. And body articulation is important, but it comes secondary to
1: the trajectory. So how are you understanding trajectory? What is the uh, way in which you plan out a trajectory when it comes to wingsuit base?
2: Well, when I look at GPS data, I sort of relay or I relate, um, or I look at sort of where I peaked out my vertical speed and then what glide ratio I was doing at that time or where I peaked out my horizontal speed and what glide ratio I was doing at that time and then you start to understand the relationship or with you and your suit of what glide ratios you're getting your best lift at or then uh, getting your best acceleration or then like once you go past certain glide ratios the point which you start to slow down and so that helps you to dial in the glide ratios where you're accelerating the most and so for me for a particular speed run then that's where i want to draw out that time where i'm flying in between one to one and 1. 1.8 to one to allow my suit to accelerate and my body to accelerate for longer
0: and now um, for those reference points i think also is there a visual reference points as well because like you're seeing those things on the computer when you go home when you're going back to do your next repetition are you thinking oh okay like this was the point that i had you know this speed that i want with the glide that i want um i want that's going to be my visual reference point or is it something else
2: yeah so i think it um it, like the way that I look at it as a whole is you can go down the rabbit hole with numbers and you can be on the computer and even with exit points or whether it's speed runs or exit points or whatever, you can, you can get too deep in the numbers, but you can also go down the rabbit hole with feeling as well. And what I choose to do is use numbers to build feeling. And so that can be um, doing a run and then seeing where I could improve and relating that to visual reference points on a jump. So I can be like, oh, I need to be flying here or here. Um, and then I can also use the GPS to help me to fly at the correct angles. Um, so for, for a skydiving competition, I use the audible feedback from the GPS to be able to help myself to um, have alarms, to be able to flare and hit the gates because it's just a, just a invisible gate in the sky. So you're using audible feedback through headphones on the GPS to be able to time your entry into that gate perfectly. And then it's also speaking to me and I can configure it differently for different rounds. So for example, in the distance round in the skydiving competitions, I the GPS will be speaking to me in my ear, telling me my glide ratio. So it'll be like 3.2, 3.5, 3.3, 4.2. But then in the background, I can set up a secondary uh, beeping between a certain range of speeds. So it might be like a high beep at 200 kilometers an hour. So I'm flying along and it'll be quiet. And then as I hit 200, it'll be like beep, beep, beep. And then as I progressively slow down to say, like whatever I set the low beep at like 150, it'll be like beep, 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 bop, bop, bop. So in the background, that's giving me like a essentially a stall alarm to make sure that I don't fly too slow to then be able to start losing my uh, lift. And um, on a base jump, I don't really uh, use the audible feedback from the GPS a lot of the time because I can find it can be a distraction. But where it's specifically for those King's Challenge speed runs, I listen to the glide ratio to help me to draw out that amount of time that I'm spending from 1.1 to 1.8 to be able to hit that perfect curve. And then I also do use the visual references from the terrain as well, once I build up familiarity with the exit point that I'm jumping from.
1: Okay, so to package this up, the scientific tools you're using are to start building the reference points for the base jump that you're about to do, and then the important part is to keep those visual reference points in mind as you're uh, you know, flying the line as a primary focus, and the secondary focus is to uh, match those angles with the proper body articulation to complement the angle that you're flying.
2: Yeah, because if it comes to say secondary from just speed runs, if you're just flying terrain in the base environment, um, it's you, doing those speed runs or doing that skydiving training is helping you to understand your range, so you're able to because you're able to understand by feeling when you have speed to do a big flare or when you have speed to be able to glide over a ridge or you're able to understand that you're losing energy and that you don't have the speed or the glide to make it over a ridge and you need to pitch. So it's um, using the numbers to build the feeling to help you fly terrain safer. And with the with the body articulation as well, it's like that if you're, um, going to fly with a little bit of dihedral and that helps you to be a bit more stable, then so be it. If you're flying a really steep line and you're really focused on having this perfect arms level or anhedral body position, you're going to sacrifice a little bit of stability potentially with your skill set. So it might be better for you to fly with a little bit of dihedral to be stable while you're flying that um, line, but then still be able to have lots of speed
1: so how do you know when you're looking at your uh, performance how do you know whether it's a reference point adjustment that's necessary or a body position adjustment that's necessary to improve i guess it's just a balance
2: you know and for everything that i've learned it's through through trial and error and so like a try something different with my trajectory or with my body position and then i look at the results and it's better or worse and then i uh just progress through that sort of trial and error method and then i'm building but basically it's like it's just building the skills skydiving to be able to know the range of your wingsuit and so whether it's like and and that's the beautiful thing about the skydiving format is it's the three separate rounds. You've got speed, distance and time. So like minimum drag, best lift divided by drag for the distance and then minimum fall rate, so floatiness for the time. And then so that's helping you understand your range of where you're getting the maximum speed, where you're getting the maximum glide and where you're getting the maximum float. And so that's helping you to fully understand your whole range in a
1: wingsuit and that's what you're flying in the mountains so you need to understand your full range so it sounds like you're going through a scientific process basically of narrowing down variables to try and understand which variable is most important in that part of the flight to improve performance am i correct yeah well it's like um for me i see people that
2: wingsuit base jumping that are learning to fly their wingsuit in the mountains and for me that just seems crazy because I think if you approach it in the right way with some coaching or even some drills um, or especially doing that wingsuit performance flying format you can you don't have to do a lot of jumps to be able to get to know the range of your wingsuit and then you're a lot safer when you're base jumping.
0: One of the things that you just mentioned was uh, was pretty interesting. Is that you're using the technology to build awareness? Uh, I think that's really fascinating. Uh, you know, one of the things in the advances advancements that I'm really looking forward to is uh, is uh, in, you know the the reality that we're gonna have when we're had a you know heads up display with pylons or rings that we're going to be able to race through. Um, you know, and compete against each other. And uh, this is something um, that is going to really be the next step for our development as uh, wingsuit pilots. Um, If anything was possible um, and you could have any technology you wanted, what what, what would it be that uh, would help you, you know, take your wingsuiting to the next level? Would you want to have a heads-up display? Would you want to have... Uh, you know, metrics of like how much drag, you know, is there anything that you're thinking about and wishing for right now?
2: Yeah, like, I mean, heads up displays would be cool and interesting. Again, I think it comes back to that thing though of like going down the rabbit hole with numbers or going down the rabbit hole with feeling and using the numbers to build feeling because if you are using a heads up display on a base jump potentially it could be extremely distracting as well. So whatever tools you have available, I think that you've got to um, use them to build your skills in the skydive environment, but then also whatever tools you're using in the base jumping environment to, to ensure that that's not taking
0: away from, um,
2: your focus on, on the, on the task at hand.
0: Um, yeah, I agree with you but, there. Um, I, I don't even like jumping with a full face helmet because, uh, it takes away some of the feeling, you know, like I'm all jump wingsuit, skydiving all day with a full face, but when I'm in the mountains, I, I want to feel, I want to have all the sensory inputs that I possibly can and and having that air on my face is, you know that's my uh, my natural technology to, to to build awareness did you did you have something to, to add matt
1: yeah uh, chris what do you what would you say to the previous generation flyer who says scientific tools are the death of intuitive flying i've heard that a lot from people from my generation at least well that's why i'm
2: super passionate about like um giving people uh a process or a simple way of interpreting the data because a lot of people are intimidated by it they're intimidated by competition and intimidated by gps graphs and stuff but if you can give them a simple process to to make it easy for them then it allows them to get some learning from it because regardless of the amount of data there you've got to be able to learn from it and um thing is for me is it's like i'm super passionate about the competition and the wingsuit skydiving performance flying format because i feel that it like if people had uh do that and understand the full range of their wingsuits that it will prevent fatalities um especially in 2016 when i started base jumping there was a number of fatalities from people trying to glide over ridges when they didn't have the energy to be able to do that um and it's it's as simple as being able to do 10 skydives and be able to understand the range that you would have recognized within the feeling within
0: your body that
2: you don't have the the glide and the speed to make it over that
1: ridge. Let's get into so, that.
0: was a very dark year to jump into the sport. Uh, yeah, that's definitely burned into a lot of our memories of, about uh, being the most dark year in wingsuit base. You had mentioned um, a couple of drills that people can do in the skydive environment. Uh, what what are those drills?
2: For a start, this is the wingsuit performance skydiving format. So at the moment, it's a window in between 2,500 meters and 1,500 meters where you do speed, distance, and time rounds. And so that's teaching you to fly as far as you can. It's teaching you to spend as long in the window as possible. And then when you get to time it perfectly, you flare. So you can come into the window to start the timer. And you can flare up out of the window and then kick it over and glide through the whole window. And like uh, Chris Gaylor is regularly doing over a hundred seconds for uh, the one kilometer of altitude uh, within the the window. And so it's like a an average vertical speed underneath forty kilometers an hour, which is just ridiculous. Um, and then for the speeds, like you said, the people are getting average ground speeds over 300 kilometers an hour. And sometimes upper winds are obviously accelerating that, but it's it's amazing the level of performance that is available at the wingsuits today. And for people where they're saying that, you know, technology is the death of intuitive flying, I'd say that the exact opposite, I'd say using a bit of technology is going to increase your intuition, it's gonna build your feeling, um, and it's going to allow you to be flying at a higher performance and it, like ultimately be safer in the base environment.
1: So you mentioned these windows and these tools and a lot of us, uh, are familiar with them, but there are a lot of us that aren't. Can you talk us through precisely like what that dive flow looks like when you have that fly side on what you're actually doing, uh, from exit to opening?
0: yeah
2: so the the thing i'm really passionate about is like helping the continuation of the sport because um sometimes at drop zones they can get frustrated by wingsuit pilots asking to get out three miles past the drop zone or whatever it is but you can do a regular uh flight plan so you can hop out after the last exit on the plane you can fly uh, continue on jump run for a little bit take a right turn and then simulate the dive into the window for the exit um, and so it's pretty simple to set up a flight plan and to give somebody um, a plan to fly and then they can build their personal bests in those speeds, distance, and time rounds. And then when they go to try that again and they beat that personal best, it's like, hey, you flew faster or you flew further, you're improving. And then it's giving them some some glide ratios and stuff that they know within which they can fly and their performance level. Aside from that, um, even just a dive plan of exiting and doing multiple dives and flares through a run and then having a look at uh, the altitude that you can gain with your flare and then the relationship of like how much vertical energy you're building and then how efficiently you're translating that into horizontal energy and then how efficiently you're translating that horizontal energy into a flare. That's building really good experience and building really good feeling for being able to flare in the base environment because I've seen people where they're say used to flying quite fast, and then they might be trying to make a certain landing area um, or do a distance run, and then they try to do a flare. Um, like they have a lot of speed, and then they stall the suit. They're in a and they, you know, can find it more difficult to find the pilot chute from that configuration. But if they'd built the feeling through a bit of training, they would know that if they're already flying with slow speed on on a distance run that they're not gonna have to flare as much to be able to pull. And so it's it's helping build that feeling just through a a few simple drills.
0: I have been uh, personally a bit lazy with the technology, to be honest. Um, I've found similar progression with flying with top pilots. You know, going out and uh, doing some dives and flares, and being next to top-level wingsuit pilots, uh, and getting that visual reference of, you know, making small adjustments within the flight to keep up or pass or or whatever, but staying with a tight with a a group of really well uh, with the, with a with a group of really well performing wingsuit pilots, uh, can also be a, a drill that, that's really helpful for developing that intuition and that, that feeling.
2: Yeah, exactly. There's, um, there's no perfect way. Like I think for the, for the progression as a whole, um, there's lots of different things involved and, uh, there's certain things that have worked for me, but there is people that are going to be intimidated by the technology and stuff as well. But it's like, um, utilizing the tools that you have available. And whether it's technology or flying with other people, I think like if you can sort of put put it under an umbrella of going that whichever path you take, if you're working towards being a better pilot, it's ultimately gonna make you more capable and more safer in the mountains. And at the end of the day, that's gonna allow you to have more fun. And so that's ultimately what I want people to be able to do is be safer and to have more fun.
0: I think that we could talk for hours uh, about the details of, of performance flying. And I think we've already covered quite a bit. Um, uh, if you don't mind, um, I'd like to backtrack a little bit and, and, and get a little bit more information about you because we don't know a whole lot about you. Like, what do you? what's your normal gig? What do you do when you're not flying in the mountains? Or, do you work in skydiving or are you a plumber? How does Chris well, pay the bills? I'm a carpenter by
2: trade and then uh recently i've started getting into rope access work because um basically it felt like um a third of the base jumpers i met did that for work and so um seemed like a good way to be able to earn some cash in a short amount of time learn some skills on ropes that small amounts of it might be able to translate into mountaineering in the future and then uh yeah, be able to work casually and have time
1: off to be able to go on missions. What got you into base jumping in the first place?
2: Um, I saw videos on YouTube, man, and just instantly it just captured my attention so much. And I just knew that that was what I wanted to do with my life and then talked about it for years. And then eventually I sort of went for a tandem to see if I liked free fall. You know, I loved it, but then waited another year and a half and eventually started a skydiving course. And then it just, um, yeah it's just slowly taken over my life from there so you started skydiving with the intention of base jumping dude man i had goals written down about going to world wingsuit league before i even started skydiving like i'd seen from the facebook posts and stuff that you needed three years of wingsuit base jumping experience and 300 wingsuit base jumps to be able to skydive uh to be able to compete at world wingsuit league and i'd I'd had like you know and then i started skydiving and i had like 50 skydives and i made plans like okay if i do 10 skydives every weekend and then uh, I go to boogies twice a year during my time off and then I'd write down these plans and make budgets and stuff and I was just like dude it's impossible I'll be like 60 by the time I can get there but slowly just one step at a time it was just surreal like eventually I was like at World Wingsuit League with Yoki Summer and
1: just living the dream how was that uh initial goal received by the people uh, training you how to skydive you know you show up to aff level one with a you know a goal of being a a competitive wingsuit base jumper i imagine you might have gotten some uh, cross-eyed looks
2: yeah dude i think that there's people in the community that obviously for you know it's a dangerous sport or for whatever reasons you know or just that they might be burnt out in their profession as an AF instructor or a tandem instructor or whatever that they're going to give people some negative feedback for wanting that but um, I feel the exact opposite I feel that if you care about like the sport like of even if it's just skydiving if somebody comes to the drop zone and they want to be a like a, a wingsuit BASE jumper first they've got to be able to come like a, a really competent excellent skydiver so encourage that like and encourage them to be able to learn about base jumping in a methodical way because if you learn about jump run and flat flying and canopy skills and all these things it's all adding up to helping you to be a better base jumper at the end of the day so uh, I'd like to be the change that I want to see in the community and and, uh, encourage people when they come to the drop zone as fresh jumpers and say they want a wingsuit base jump I say that is awesome but let's follow the right progression to help that make it become a reality in a safe way.
0: What does that progression look like in a brief outline? Well, I think that
2: that's where things have changed from the old school to the new school. So that's where I think that there's lots of things that you can do within skydiving too that are gonna add up to helping you to be a better base jumper. And uh, the, uh, one of the things is, is once you do get to wingsuiting, is to do that wingsuit performance flying skydiving format to learn the full range of your wingsuit. And it doesn't take too many jumps because you can be like in a really, you can know the full range of your wingsuit. And then that way, like you start base jumping and you can progress through base jumping and do slider down jumps and build the other necessary things that are involved, like packing and getting used to different feelings and visuals and decision-making. But then by that time, once you've done some terminal jumps and you've done some tracking and you're ready to progress to wingsuiting, that it is so much easier if you know exactly how to fly your wingsuit in the sky and you know the full range, It to be able to do all of that base preparation and then put on a wingsuit and not be able to fly at 100%, it just seems crazy to me. So doing the work in the sky first and knowing how to fly your wingsuit, it's just just one less thing on your mind.
1: Well, speaking of crazy, I'd like to jump back to you and ask, well, you've accomplished the goal that you set out initially. What continues to motivate you to be on the sharp end of the sport?
2: I just absolutely love it. For me, it makes me a better person. Like uh, having the time off through the coronavirus and uh, spending more time in Australia doing skydiving, and then being able to come back to the mountains, it's like, it sets my soul on fire. And I just love to fly and I love to, to progress and see what I'm capable of. And it's just amazing.
0: Are you uh, scared of dying?
2: No, but I think that like talking about death is extremely positive for me embracing my own mortality has been the single most positive thing I've ever done in my life because it makes me live for people that are afraid of dying like if you're super super scared of dying in a logical way you should be completely stoked on being alive because you're alive right now and so knowing that you're going to die one day makes you live the life that you want you know you you go to your boss and you say hey stuff you i quit or you know you go and ask that pretty girl out on a date or you chase your goals because you're alive and you only get the one opportunity to enjoy the power and beauty of your youth so and it makes you it makes you have difficult conversations like even within my family um getting into base jumping and like writing a letter to them, if I die, it's initiated some difficult conversations, but they've been really positive in the long term. Um, Because a lot of people wait till they're on their deathbed to be able to tell their family that they love them. Tell your family and friends that you love them right now. Live the life that you want to live. It's, uh, I think that's like, a really positive thing that's come from me base jumping is, is understanding that, you know, I could die tomorrow. And that's why I'm going to live the life that I want to live today.
0: I know, um, that you say in your countdown to exit three, two, one dream. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: For me, this is the dream and, Within humanity, I think that there's an importance placed on last words. Um, there's a famous outlaw in Australia from back in the day, um, Ned Kelly. And before he was hung, he was an outlaw and he had uh, he said, such is life. And you know, people get it tattooed on them and things like that. But for me, every time when I jump, I don't know essentially whether I'm gonna live or whether I'm gonna die. So what I say before I exit is potentially my last words. And if I was to be able to choose a one-word message to humanity or to my friends or family, it would be dream. Let your imagination run wild. Anything you want, you can have it
1: if you approach it in a measured way. That's interesting to hear somebody as calculated as you say that you don't know whether you're going to live or die on the jump. You know, as compared to another guest of ours, Rich Webb, who would almost say that, that... You know with with pretty certain like terminology that he was going to survive on the jumps because he's calculated so much so what leads you to say that and and what is the probability in your head there
2: i don't mean it in a reckless way that like oh yeah it's a coin toss and i don't know whether i'm going to live or whether i'm going to die but i think it's um an easy way for complacency to creep in or to a certain way that you're in denial if you're going to say 100% I'm going to survive this jump because the the sport kills people that are beginners and it kills people that are that are experts and I think you've got to no jump is worth dying for but you've got to be able to be prepared that it could happen on any jump And so for me, that helps me to be safer and to be better prepared with having my affairs in order and things like that. And it also helps me to choose the people that I jump with better as well, because I've seen people die. I've inspected people's bodies and I've written incident reports. And I've had people that have died that have been quite close friends, but I didn't have their emergency contacts. So essentially, I had to be a private investigator to work out who their parents were and be the first person to tell them that their son had died. So if you take a little bit more sort of responsibility and understanding that this is a dangerous sport and that you could die, it helps you to put things in place to make sure that you're being responsible because to not have your affairs in order and to not have these difficult conversations with your family or to not have your friends have your emergency contact information it makes like what can sometimes be described as a selfish sport a lot more selfish and reckless because if you do die, you're leaving a burden for those left behind. So I, well said. Well said, I only do things that are within my experience level. I really try to find that balance between knowing what is and isn't within my experience level. And as you guys put it, when you get on the sharp end, it can be very difficult because you're venturing into territory that not many people have ventured into before or for opening new exit points that nobody's ventured into before.
1: Now, there's something I want to dig into a little bit. Um, I'd like to know how you're building margin, especially on jumps where you're on sighting the line. And I've seen a couple of lines that you've flown through some amazing social media. By the way, I I follow the crap out of you, man. It's so awesome watching uh, uh, the lines that you're putting down. And I've recently become aware that some of those lines were on sites. and uh, I'm curious how you are building the margin into uh, an on-site line. And just for anyone that's curious that, of that terminology, I'm saying flying a line for the first time without uh, previous practice or information.
0: So below tree line on the ground, ripping a sweet terrain line for the first time on site?
2: Well, to a certain extent, like I am assessing as much information that I have available to me. So one thing that I've been doing here in Switzerland is I'm looking at um, topographical maps and there's a a map here where you can look at power lines. So you can look at uh, and see if there's any power lines that are labeled on the map that are gonna be within the lines that you fly. And so it certainly gives you, a, and you can laser the exit, so it gives you a lot of information. Even um, if you haven't flown it before, you have a lot of information that's available. But I know my range, and I know the feeling of where I can fly in my wingsuit. And even if it's on the first time of a line, I, I can be aggressive. And it's a it's a hard balance to fly. But sometimes, like I see a lot of people where they try to be safe. And a lot of people I feel have gone in trying to be safe in a way that they feel other people will see them. And to fly closer to the terrain isn't necessarily always more dangerous because you're flying with more energy. If you're like at the beginning and you're flying like 100 meters off the deck, if you stall your wingsuit, it doesn't really matter whether you're 10 meters off the deck or 100, you might not be able to get your pilot chute out in time. So me being comfortable with knowing exactly what the range is with my wingsuit and then utilizing information that's available available to me, whether it be topographical maps or cable maps or weather conditions and the, the apps that are available for weather now and using a laser on the exit um, and then assessing the terrain that I'm available to fly, then yeah, I do feel comfortable to be able to um, fly the terrain on my first flight. But then I can build reference points and build better visual awareness of the jump over time and get more aggressive on future flights. But sometimes you go down the rabbit hole a little bit, and I've done that especially on that Dreamlines jump. It's such a technical place to fly because of the start, because of the glide that's required to get over the line. The how long the line is, and because of the similarness of the grass slopes and the houses, it's easy to get lost in the terrain, and then there's cables everywhere at the end of the line. So it's like I've I've built like I've done five jumps off the cliff there and I've done two jumps out of the chopper there now as well. Um, but like I've flown a line there to the right where I'm then flaring over terrain and then getting into it, like flaring over power lines, getting into a trench that has power lines as well. And to a certain extent, then you feel like it's it's chasing the dragon and, and when is enough enough? And that's when it's, I'm really grateful to be able to have the speed runs and the performance flights or the distance flights or filming other people. I've got multiple outlets where I can still challenge myself, but in safer ways. And in any of those outlets, whether it's terrain flying or filming or performance runs, I can feel myself when I get to a stage where I'm chasing the dragon and then I'm lucky to have those different outlets to mix it up, to be able to give myself some variety to I feel be safer.
1: So it sounds like rather than, uh, the margin on some of these jumps being built in the numbers, you're building the margin in how at home you feel in a wingsuit and how at home you feel in that particular mountain range. am, am I like characterizing that properly?
2: Yeah, I think it's like, um, I'm not going to go too crazy on the terrain if I don't know if there's cables there or if I haven't seen any video of it before, but I think people can overcomplicate the process as well and they can get obsessed with setting checkpoints. And like setting checkpoints can be good, but then it's killed people as well because they've flown over a ridge at Bravant into a certain line in the morning and then they want to do that again in the afternoon and then they've died trying to fly over that ridge. And so if they were trusting their feelings better, rather than building a methodical process and trusting their checkpoints, then it maybe would have kept them alive.
0: Target fixation uh, is real. And uh, I've unfortunately been on a fatality load where that was the, the reason that just that, they wanted to hit a target or hit uh, their checkpoint. And uh, the conditions just, weren't allowing it at that point, and yeah, they they lost the awareness of the air and uh, the sort of energy that they had, and uh, were focused on uh, the task instead. I think it's also worth mentioning that you hike some of the lines that you fly too. Like that's that's another level of homework, you know, like actually hike in the flight and uh, for obstacles, and I mean, you know watching the video, um, can be uh, real deceiving as far as like how steep it is, uh, obstacles that are there, um, all sorts of things is yeah. So, um, I think that's Chris does his homework. Yeah.
2: But at the same time as well, you can, you can do too much homework as well. And I think it was, uh, Matt Gertie's, who says, you know, like terrain flying is quite easy. All you really need is spatial awareness and an understanding of flying your wingsuit, but. You can you can make it, it's, it's complex stuff and there's a lot of different factors that go into it and you want to be able to take into account the information that's easily available to you. And the, But the most important thing is to know your limits and know what is and isn't within your experience level. And another thing that I try to do is recognize problem patterns of behavior before they result in an incident and to be honest with myself and pull myself up on occasion if I start to see that I'm, you know, if I'm getting away with jumps or getting away with certain things or behaviors, not to just go, yeah, that's okay, and it was all good, but to kind of go, hey, do I have some room for improvement here or should I take a little bit of a step back?
0: That's interesting. I have my own, I have my own metric for uh, the way uh, the approach is going. It's something that I learned from Steph Davis and it's like a, a three strikes you're out or a three flags, warning flags. And uh, uh, I've used that quite often. Like, uh, you know, it could be something as simple as stumbling on the hike or dropping my gear or feeling ill. You know, anytime there's three factors that show up on the approach or in the car, whatever on that day, I don't care what it is. I'm walking down. And that's just sort of the, the, the boundaries that I've set for myself. I think that what you're talking about too is this personal awareness of of how you're feeling and and how in your perfect personal performance for that day can be something extremely difficult too. I mean, this is, this is hard stuff to understand. Are there things that you look for in in your own mind or in your own body uh, to take account for how well how perform how well you were performing that day
2: yeah and like what, what some of the things that you said about those three strikes and things like it's, it's actually one of the things i most enjoy about base jumping is the you know on the hike i might have thoughts going through my head of like you know if i die what's my mum gonna think or what's this person gonna say or oh what's the wind doing and all this sort of thing and you have that um that monkey brain or that fear and worry in your head and it's like i love that sort of self-actualization or being able to move past that and go no like um i've done the research i'm feeling good i'm feeling safe and i'm gonna send it and it's a beautiful thing to step outside your comfort zone and overcome those things and to even if you are scared be able to know what is and isn't within your experience level to be able to fly. And it's a beautiful Do you always push
0: through those boundaries or are there times where you're like, I'm gonna just take it easy on this one?
2: Oh, 100%, yeah. So one of the things that I've realized recently or like that I've learned more about recently getting into some higher altitude jumps is then doing high altitude jumps and then trying to do speed runs. And so the fatigue on the hike it's hard to do a long hike and then to be able to calm down and stretch and then be able to be in a full frame of mind to be able to send it on a jump that's that's it's really hard and then I'll recognize that on jumps and I've walked down from jumps before where I felt that if I was going to exit that I would have all my legs are going to cramp or that I'm going to I'm so exhausted that I'm not going to be able to be safe when I'm going to fly. And that's a hard decision to make, especially when you're looking at a four hour hike down and you're already exhausted. And you know, that if you jump up, jump off, you can be down in two minutes, but you've got to recognize like, you know, am I tired or, and you've got to build that into how you fly. So
0: it's, um, yeah, absolutely. I've, Recently had an eight-hour approach to almost 4,000 meters and was forced to gear up on like a half a meter by half a meter space Uh, (laughs) Very stressful gear up spot to be uh, to say the least Um, And yeah, I mean I had these ideas about this rip in line that I wanted to fly and uh, you know a big part of that day was just flying with the tools that I had at the moment and uh you know, I felt good, but um there was definitely some uh adjustment of expectations based on uh how the day had unfolded.
2: Yeah, I think that's um it comes back to something we spoke at the very beginning about what makes the best space jumper. And it's regardless of the line that you fly, it's amazing to just descend from a mountain in a wingsuit. And so Knowing thyself and and knowing the how you're feeling at the time, it's um it's super nice to just do a cruisy flight and a high parachute opening and enjoy the parachute ride sometimes. And you got to recognize sometimes, yeah, like when it's good to be aggressive or when it's good to fly um, cruisy.
1: So, and that's a tough thing for a lot of uh, jumpers to do. You know, going back to your uh, life philosophy of, you know, we're here now, let's, let's live as much as we can. Um, there are certainly a lot of jumpers that take that to the next step and sacrifice, you know, their tomorrow for the today's flight. And, uh, so I'm, I'm wondering like, what do you say to that person who is trying to find the balance between maximizing their life now and, maintaining some kind of uh, view of the future so that they um, curtail their now jumping to include possibly jumping in the future.
2: One thing that really helps me is I imagine having a conversation with some of my friends that have died and um, say, I had a couple of really good friends die in 2019. If I was able to just sit down for 10 minutes and have a conversation with them right now, I'd be like, hey, man, how's it going? And they'd be like, oh, dude, man, I'm so sorry I died, man. I stuffed up and I went in and I'm like, yeah, dude, man, you should be really sorry, man. I had to like look at your body with your your mum, you know, like she was really upset. Oh, dude, I'm so sorry. And I'd be like, anyway, man, let, let, let me tell you about what's happened since you've been gone, you know, like oh, dude, I went to China and I won this comp and, oh, I met a pretty girl and, oh, I did this awesome trip to New Zealand and then, oh, dude, you wouldn't believe it, like, this virus took over the whole world and we <laughs> weren't able to travel for ages and then, like, this happened and that happened and it'd be like, wow, man. I'm like, yeah, dude, you know, like, so much has happened and it's only been two years since you've been gone, you know? You missed out on so much and, you know, that's the thing that sort of, I want to send it and I want to do amazing things, but I don't want to miss out on the future as well. And it's that balance to find. And it's to think about what you're leaving behind as well, you know, like no jumps worth dying for. And at the end of the day, nobody really cares whether you're ripping a sick line or whether you're just flopping off the mountain and um, having a super cruisy flight and pulling it a thousand meters, you know, like it's
1: be around for a good time and a long time. On that note, I'd also like to ask, you know, undoubtedly, there are some people that are just like you watching social media and looking at your videos going, that's where I want to be. Uh, what advice do you have the people that are chasing the green flying dude?
2: Man, do it like flying is amazing. It'll help you to be a better person and whenever it is in life, like whether it's playing chess or raising a family or asking for a raise from your boss, like life is special and uh, go for it. Live the storybook life that you want because you know, it starts now and life is beautiful. And if you want to end up like flying wingsuits in a technical way, then follow the pathway that's, that's there. And I feel lucky that I was, you know, that I only started base jumping in 2016 because I was able to learn on modern equipment and learn with modern techniques. And even now it's progressed so much further since I started and there's so many tools available to help you to be able to progress in a awesome way and to be able to take advantage of
0: all the latest tools that are available we've um, been talking a lot about the mental aspect of uh, wingsuit base and uh, these are all incredible nuggets there's one technical thing that i want to loop back to uh, and that's the use of laser range finders because i know that you're well informed and diligent about your use of lasers Um, can you talk a little bit about um, you've opened something that you deemed after yoki's video um, and his uh, helicopter line. Uh, you did quite a bit of laser range find uh, work with that exit point. And I think you've also found another one that's even more friendly recently after that. Can you walk us through a little bit about what you do for uh, opening an exit point, what you do with those numbers and, um, and the consideration that goes into that sort of process?
2: Yeah well um, I still have a lot to learn with lasering but I do use it as a tool to help me assess new exit points Um, but I take the numbers with a massive grain of salt and I know from doing a lot of camera flying base jumping I know what I can jump over in regards to ledges in the first 50 meters and I don't really like tossing rocks off exit points a lot of the time but for certain jumps if there's no one below and um that sort of thing. You can use a few small rocks to help you to, to see how far your launch is gonna get you. Um, but then using the laser as well to be able to determine um, the terrain further down the mountain really helps you as well. That, um, for example, the laser that I have, it has Bluetooth, so it can connect to my phone and I can build a, a terrain profile in a, in a minute and then I have GPS tracks saved on my phone of me flying my wingsuit. I can compare it to those GPS tracks and then give myself an idea of whether jump is uh, possible or not. And I did that in uh, Saudi Arabia in 2019 as well. So I was able to, you know, in five minutes do the homework with the laser to be able to compare that to the GPS all on my phone to be able to say, yeah, this is within my experience level. But
0: now, sorry, with that, the line that you're using to judge whether or not it's doable or not, is that a, uh, an average uh, from your worst start to your best start or are you using your best start or where does that line uh, come from for you?
2: Yeah. So I have a few different GPS tracks saved on my phone. So some um, high altitude ones, because with the thinner air, you're going to start a little bit slower in the wingsuit. Um, One that I really like to compare it to is like a speed run. So where I'm carrying more energy through the start arc, because then if I go like, oh, even on a speed run, I'd still be on the deck of the terrain. I know that I've got a lot more range than that. Then for me, that gives me the comfort level to kind of go that there's a lot of margin in the jump. Um, But I'm not just looking at the numbers and going like, oh yeah, well, the numbers say it's okay. I'm relating that to my experience level and my visuals and, other work that I can do say on like Google Earth or other topographical map uh, apps or websites to be able to calculate the glide to the landing area that's outside of my laser um, range and that sort of thing. So I use the laser as a tool, but I don't use it blindly and ignore the visual that I see as
0: well. So it's visual for you, that's interesting. I think we all have our little uh, things that we fall back on, it's what's more comfortable. Um, you talked about um, camera flying and what you can jump over. I, I don't see the connection there. Can you explain that to me a little bit?
2: Yeah, so with camera flying, um, generally the person that I'm filming will take the, you know, I, I want them to be as relaxed and as comfortable as possible. That I don't want them to have to worry about me at all in their flight to, because if, they're, if they have thoughts in their mind that I'll, I have to, exit this way or I have to fly this way um, it's it's taking away from them being safe so I want them to be able to essentially run a solo and I'll I'll tell them if I'm going to back fly in certain sections or things like that but for the actual exit I'm usually exiting from the secondary position so they're taking the best point where it's good for them to launch from and so camera flying's been rad because it's taught me to exit off a lot of different stuff whether it's like flat rocks or pointy rocks or grass or different things. And then also then to be able to exit from things like further back or that I might have to jump over some subterminal ledges or trees or things like that. Um, and cause it can really help me, especially on exits that are in like a, a bowl or a V, um, if I get their exact launch landmark of where they're going to launch. And then if I know that they're gonna turn left, like uh, sometimes I can, Exit over the top of them and say, like, exit from the right, but then end up subterminal on the left to be able to cut the corner. And so it's really taught me a lot about being able to exit off a lot of different footmarks, but then also to be able to really look at the terrain subterminal below the exit point and look at different ledges or look at the, um, you know, if it's in a bit of a bowl or if it's in a bit of a V to be able to go, like, how much can I cut the corner on the exit? and then those visuals have allowed me to really get a good idea of what i can and what i can't jump over and then exactly like how i'm moving in my start arc.
1: cool moving on to some other equipment i'm curious uh, what equipment are you flying and why uh, did you make those decisions um so at the moment i'm with squirrel
2: um for wingsuits and parachutes and containers and um like i've flown four tony suits and phoenix fly in the past and um like i've won competitions like i've won world base race and i've won world wingsuit league in those different suits so i have a real world practice and understanding of testing and flying races race suits and winning competitions and like i really enjoy to fly the squirrel equipment because it gives me better results. And then most of all, just because I feel it's good vibes and, uh, with the team and the, everything like that. And it gives me the right tools that I need to, to, to jump safely in the mountains. Do you have a and go-to uh,
1: suit and a go-to container or parachute that you liken? And, um, if so, I'm, I'm curious, cause I mean, everybody's flying, like the whole range of every manufacturer. And so uh, I'm curious, like, you know, what tool are you, uh, you know, stoked on at the moment?
2: Man, if I was only gonna be able to fly wings, one wingsuit for everything, it'd be the the CR Plus. Like, I just love having the most amount of performance available. And it's, it's stable at all angles, and uh, I can back it. It doesn't have back inlets, but if you have decent body articulation, it'll it'll back fly fine as well. And uh, you can do short starts in it. And but I just like having that ultimate power, like in the flare, and in the glide, and in the speed. And it's just like, why
0: would you drive a Ford Focus when you can drive a Lamborghini? You know. Man, you've, but you've inspired it, me to order a CR Plus for sure. Like. Uh... I was, uh, in love with the 2016, uh, uh, Red Bull Aces, uh, C, uh, C race. That suit is still like one of my favorites. Um, but, uh, yeah, seeing what you're doing and how much power and the flair you've got with that CR plus, is it a CR plus base friendly version or is it uh, your full competition suit?
2: Um, so I've got with me on this trip, I've got two CR pluses and a C race. One's a skydiving CR+, and I've just been using that for performance records. And then I have a, a base-friendly CR+, um, that still is a weapon with in regards to performance, but slightly bigger inlets, mega storage, and it's just a lot more comfortable for base. And then a, a base C-race as well. And I really like that for filming. Like today, I filmed a two-piece tracking suit, and uh, you can fly with, with anybody in it, and it backflies and but it sort of comes down to, to right tools from the, for the job. So even aside from brands, like what I tell people is like, find the balance between performance and ease of use. And what I mean by that is like say sea C-race or a racing suit from a different manufacturer, it might be like say a hundred potential performance points. But if you don't, because it's gonna be maybe a little bit more of a handful to fly compared to another suit, if you're only getting 80% out of that 100 potential performance points, maybe you'd be better off on a a suit that might only say have like 90 potential performance points, but because it has a better ease of use, getting 95% out of 90 is better than getting 80% out of 100. So find that balance between ease of use and performance and get the right
0: tools for the job. Yeah, I mean, the things that you're talking about carry over to any manufacturer, um, you know, as far as comfort go. Uh, can you expand a little bit on what comfort means exactly? Because I think it means different things for different people. Um, like for me, um, the, 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 how tight it is in the sleeve um, can be a real indicator of how much uh, available performance that I might have out of my race suit. Um, and, but, um, I like it a little bit looser in the wrist, especially, um, uh, and then uh, the amount of internal pressure that is maintained within the suit can also be a comfort. Well, is there any details that you want to share with us about comfort and like what you're looking for in comfort in a base suit? I think generally for people
2: like, uh, one thing is just the level of surface area and, um, the for me, with the, I, I noticed the difference now because I hadn't jumped the C race a lot um, before this summer. I'd only done it for uh, World Wingsuit League in 2019, but then I've done a lot more jumps on it this summer. And um, the difference between the C race and the CR Plus is, is, is very similar. The CR Plus has, has a bit of extra surface area, um, but it's... Uh, it's just a little bit of extra surface area to deal with if you're doing really aggressive turns or steep lines and stuff like that. And it's still comfortable at all those angles, but just for me, it's like, it's just a little bit extra to deal with. So I have to be a little bit more um, precise with my body articulation. Whereas with the C-Race, having that little bit of extra surface area just makes it a little bit easier for me to be super nimble and agile. And that's why for other people, like they might get better performance out of a freak compared to a sea race because it's easier for them to access that
1: performance. Right. I'd like to... Did you want to jump in, that with something like that? Yeah, I'd like to jump back in time to 2016, 17. A lot of people were uh, flying or starting to fly the performance skydiving suits in the base environment. And there was a big debate going on about which was you know, quote unquote safer or least dangerous because we were trying to find a balance between getting increased performance, which was uh, arguably safer on the flight and uh, being able to manage the mistakes that one would make just as a human being, slipping on exit, um, mistiming the flare so that your pull is difficult. Where do you find the balance between uh, increasing the performance and uh still leaving margin for error in those realms that the race suits make a little more dangerous well for me
2: personally i don't think that the race suits make anything more dangerous for me i jump the race foam in the arms for for every single jump that i fly um almost the only times like i've ever taken the foam out is when i'm jumping with two jackets and i have a lot of extra gear stored with me for high alpine jumps but the the suits are comfortable at all angles and the, the most important thing though is I guess that that's what I am most comfortable flying because I do a lot of skydiving competitions and I'm flying the race suits a lot so for me in the base environment it makes sense for me to fly the suit that I'm most most comfortable with um and there's been really good progression with the suit technology, even on the race suits to make them more comfortable as time has gone by as well. And I've never had a drama with deploying or things like that, but it's gonna be different for different people. And that's why it comes down to the right tools for the job.
0: Yeah, I know, I just wanna jump in with my own personal experience. Like I feel really comfortable with the race foam as well. Um, but there are a couple of moments, and I've definitely had some oh fuck moments uh, in deployment um, with some line twist issues. And, um, you know, it's limited my ability to reach higher on the risers on after deployment, uh, controlling body twists. And uh, that, I think, is uh, maybe some of the reasons why like I don't always use the Race Foam. I'm also you know, a new dad, too, so my uh, level of currency is a little bit lower, obviously, than Chris's right now. And I think that that's like one of the, the factors that I sort of modulate uh, on my level of currency.
1: Well, uh, moving forward, I'd love to know where the next goal is for you, Chris. Uh, where are you shooting for? Do you have uh, any uh, projects or uh, any um, records that you're going after currently?
2: Yeah. So I'm having heaps of fun in Switzerland at the moment. And even just on the drive home from the Valley today, I'm just, every time I'm here, I'm just, my jaw is on the floor, just looking out the window at cliffs and going, Oh, I wonder if that's possible. Oh, you know, I can catch the train up to Schiniger Plateau and then I can hike across and laser that and like, Oh, look at those lines and lines and lines. And so it's like, I just, it just feels super fun to be surrounded by an environment that just inspires me so much. And there's so much to explore to go out and find new jumps so i'd love to do the time to do that but at the same time i'm um really excited with doing jumps um from the eiger at the moment uh to do these performance records because uh it's such an amazing mountain it has so much history with climbing and it's just so aesthetically beautiful but it's like one of the best places in the world for doing uh performance runs because it's uh big and steep and it has um High altitude, so it gives you thinner air to be able to accelerate. So I've really been chasing the dragon there recently, trying for um, these King's Challenge records. So a couple of days ago, I got to uh, 16.06 meters in the 30 seconds and I was super stoked because it was the first time anybody's gone over 1,600 meters. And um, I had the world record in 2017, 18 and 19 and then later in 2019, and through that whole process, me and my friend Yegor were just constantly swapping and um, breaking each other's records and a lot of other people involved in that process as well. And to give you an indication, like back in 2017, the King's Challenge record was 1,436 meters. And even to this day in wingsuits, there's only been um, I think around eight people or you know 10 or 11 people in history that have flown further than 1,400 meters in a wingsuit in the 30 seconds. But from from 1437 in 2017, in 2018, then it finished at uh, 1548. So it just was like a big, big, big gap, um, jump through that year. And then in 2019, I got to 1552, and then Yegor finished on 1597. But all the way back in 2017, I had the dream of going like, well, you know, I wonder if a mile would be possible in the 30 seconds, which would be like 1609 and a half meters, you know, and then I was like, oh, well, maybe if the wingsuit technology gets better through the years, that would be possible. Um, and then I've been like thinking that it would be way off in the future but then yeah for this year to be able to break that 1600 meter barrier but it was so close man like 1606 and i was like oh man the drag of the gopro you know like it would have been (laughs) would have been the mile but that keeps me hungry man you know and the other thing um so I'm, i'm shooting for that mile in the 30 seconds the other one is to um break the 100 meter barrier for a base flare so earlier this year in um Sas-podoy. I broke 90 meters for the first time of anybody on base jumps. So I did like a 91 meter flare and then the next day, like a 94.6 meter flare. Um, and I'm really excited to to do to, to build that super terminal speed and really give it a crack to try and crack the 100 meter flare in the base environment. Um, and, and then just to build the total speed, you know, I got 333 Ks an hour off the high Iger a couple of weeks ago. And I'm really excited to, to try and beat that as well. Because it's just like, a. for me, it's like, it's super fun for me, a lot of people don't get it. But for me, like, if you meet a little kid, the first thing they're gonna ask you when they see a wingsuit is like, how fast does it go? And even for me now, even with the world record on it, it's like, well, well, I don't know how fast it can go, because I know that it can be flown faster and that's the sick thing about like climbing up a mountain is like some people want to like do these distance runs and all this sort of stuff and for me it's like sometimes it's like you've got this beautiful massive cliff face giving you this void this empty space that is a playground to go like well you've got that amount of terrain to be able to build how that speed so like how much speed can you build and so it just keeps me super hungry man
0: that's funny, right? Like uh, you'll meet somebody uh, who's never seen a wingsuit before, and the first thing that they'll ask, you know, and this isn't the kid; that's the adult. Is how long does it last? <laughs> I guess it depends. If you're Chris, it lasts uh, not very long.
2: Oh, I'm pretty good, man. Like the the wingsuits, they're pretty <laughs> durable, man. And I take care of my gear, you know. Like that's one thing. Like I'm a trash packer. I always put no, my no. Wing I'm sorry. What, what I
0: mean map. is, how long does the jump last? How long can you fly? Oh, you know, and like. Yeah. you're you're hiking up to the ecstasy board and you know pulling your parachute in what 30 seconds or something yeah well it depends how steep you fly yeah but that's
2: what i meant this is one thing that i love right and so like as far as i understand it i'm the fastest self-powered human being in history because i walk up the mountain and then i jump off it so there's plenty of people that have flown faster than me like for example speed skydivers you know like there's the world championships going on at the moment in Russia and like a really good friend of mine and a a American guy, Kyle LaPriese, like last time I checked, he was in first place and he was regularly getting over 500 Ks an hour in the speed spot of him. But then they call it, they call it though, like uh, when they advertise it, they're like, yeah, it's the fastest uh, non-motorized sport on earth. And it's like, well, well, if it's non-motorized, do it without a plane. You know, (laughs) you got to respect what's giving you that Uh, energy because I reckon the fastest people in history compared to the earth would have been astronauts because they've orbited the moon and compared to the earth they would have been going the fastest and then you've got like Felix Baumgartner he went up in a hot air balloon and jumped out from the stratosphere with a space suit on and break the sound barrier in freefall but it was for those people it's like the rocket or the plane or the hot air balloon that's given them that energy but when you hike from the landing area like the actual physical process that's going on you're converting chemical energy from your legs to potential energy within your body that you're then releasing is kinetic energy when you fly. And so every step of that hike, if it's a five hour approach, it's like squeezing a big steel spring, you know, like and then even yeah. that five hours, you're winding up all of that energy. And then in that jump, you're just releasing it. And every second that you fly is like, 200 steps of energy bursting out of your chest and it's a connection to the planet man because you're hiking up that mountain you're winding up all of that potential energy and then you're using the void that that mountain presents to be able to see how much energy you can release into flight and i just find that beautiful
0: I love that. Yeah. The full circle, it's like a, a sense of liberation, like, uh, very few other people get to experience. It's uh, it's something super special, you know, in the port in the paragliding world, there's this, uh, uh, hike and fly races are getting really popular, especially here in the Alps where, you know, there'll be a start line and then you hike and you just, whatever it takes, you have to make it back to, a uh, to another point. And, uh, oftentimes like the fastest way is to fly, but sometimes it's just running or whatever. And, you know i'm personally really into the fitness aspect of 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 climbing and hiking and flying Um, it would be interesting to see some sort of sky derby format to incorporate the approach as well that's maybe something that can evolve uh uh, in the near future that's something that that i'd like to see
2: dude that's a really cool idea and the, the cool thing about sky derby is it's run by alexander kunin he's a fellow jumper and he gives what the people want. So if you have a cool idea, he can make it happen.
0: Cool, that, um, we're starting to run out of time here and uh, you know maybe we can edit this out at 2.131. Uh, um, Matt, is there anything else that you'd like to, uh, to talk about or is there any way you would like to wrap this up? And if not, um, Chris, is there anything that you would like to mention before we wrap this up?
2: it's been a really cool chat with you guys and i'm sure we can talk a lot longer like uh even outside of the podcast be nice to talk to you and
0: keep this friendship going but um right on man you know like um the one of our goals with this podcast is really to give back to the community and to tighten up this circle a little bit and and uh, circle the wagons in a way and share Uh, vetted information so that, um, you know, there's a little less myth and mystique around uh, what it means uh, to be good, what it means to be proficient and safe and have best practices, be common knowledge and um, uh, really thank you for, uh, you know, joining us and um, contributing to this conversation. And you'll always be welcome to come back and and share anything with us and uh, and we'd be happy to talk to you uh, more about this subject.
2: Yeah, for sure. And uh, just in case if anybody that's listening, um, feel free to hit me up on social media anytime. Like I'm happy to provide coaching for people, even if it's remotely, if you've got questions to ask about exits or uh, sky derby or GPS information, like, or for even if you're not even a jumper for the progression that's involved to get in a wingsuit base, Feel free to message me. I'm super passionate about it and I love to help the community as much as I can.
0: Awesome, all of your social information will be included in the show notes so they can just find you there. And I know from personal experience, uh, the online coaching um, is very valuable and uh, Chris has a ton of information to give you. And I know personally, even as an advanced wingsuit pilot, I've learned a lot from you this conversation and uh,
1: Thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah, and I just want to add my thanks as well. You know, a high tide raises all boats, and undoubtedly you are raising the tide for all of us. So thanks for pushing it out there, and all the best and nothing less.
2: Sweet, does.
0: Send it till you end it. Cheers. Wow, so Chris is a... Uh, what a good guy, right? I mean, like, super talented, humble... Um, and, uh, interesting, like dichotomy of, uh, like super, uh, regimented in his training and, uh, his, uh, analytical side to base jumping, but then also goes full send. Like, uh, it's an interesting tightrope to walk. And, uh, uh, I, I feel like I learned a lot about, uh, you know, the mentality there and, uh, Something that I'm even like going to apply to my my own mentality in a way of of looking at things, and uh, that was that was super interesting. I know you picked up on it. Yeah,
1: I, I really think that he's uh, kind of redefining the Australian culture there. Um, you know, traditionally it's been very sendy, and uh, I think he's exemplifying a new mentality that is earn sendy. <clears throat> you know, you got to put the work in to be sendy. And, you know, if you want to, uh, be at the cutting edge, you know, doing this radical stuff, then you also have to put in an incredible amount of work, you know, crunching numbers and training and being at home in the wingsuit and being at home in the mountains. And that will allow you ultimately to be even more sendy than the people that are just hucking it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that I think was a really good takeaway here was like, um, And something that I've learned in tunnel flying too is like, you know, the most performant wing isn't always like the most rigid, like uh, perfect configuration. It's the one that you're comfortable in and able to access the right angle and line, you know. And that was, that's uh, something that I think uh, really hit home for me.
1: Yeah. Speaking to him, did you have any surprises come up? You know, anything that you were expecting that, uh, went differently when uh, he started answering those questions? One of the things that kind of surprised
0: me and, and I don't, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised is that he seems to have covered all his bases already. Like there was no, no question that sort of like put him off balance or something that he hasn't already examined inside first, you know, like, uh, Some people can be a little uncomfortable when you ask them if they're scared of dying. And uh, he's fully examined that. And I think he's fully examined all the ins and outs and uh, spent time understanding how he feels personally about it. And uh, I think that's a really good place to be, you know, like uh, this is this is a full commitment activity and, uh, you shouldn't leave those dark, unhidden spots unturned. And, uh, he's clearly done, uh, his homework on his, uh, you know, spiritual and mental side as well, which is, uh something, uh, something, super interesting.
1: Yeah, man, absolutely. Prepared to the hilt, I guess is like the characterization I would use, you know, and if, if you're prepared like he is from beginning to end, literally, you know, from the beginning of, you know, the equipment that he's using and how he's using it to the end of potentially going in on the jump that he's making, you really have the uh, the space to step on the gas, you know, and put all of your energy down, put all of your uh, knowledge down, you know, into that uh, into that one flight, you know, and if you don't have that preparedness... I just don't think you'll ever be able to even create the space to uh, perform like he does.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that self-regulation piece too was was interesting, you know, because I think a lot of us can have a distorted perspective on our activity because a lot of our, you know, besides our regular jumping buddies, you know, what we see is online and it's always the rad epic shit you know, and even people like Chris Barron sometimes, you know, will, will ease off the gas and uh, have a nice cruisy flight just to escape the mountain sometimes, depending on how he feels. And uh, I don't know, maybe that's just something that I'm uh, using to confirm my own thoughts about, um, you know, like I like to get radical, but sometimes I like to, you know, just hike up a hill and have a smooth flight away.
1: Yeah, and on that note, it seems like he's really also um, bring into the sport the you know go slow to go fast mentality. You know, he doesn't just get a suit and jump it right off of a cliff. You know, he wants to uh, experience literally experience every single piece of the flight envelope before he takes it off. You know, and. Like you said, hiking up the line that he's gonna fly. I mean, there's no slower way to go than that. But once he's experienced every single rock on that line, you know, through the pads of his foot, then you know he really is able to put down every ounce of speed into that line because he knows it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have my own personal um, thoughts as far as on-siding lines. Um, what did you, what did you think? Do you? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to judge his uh, approach. It, that's his um, that's his journey. Um, it's not something that's necessarily the right for, right uh, approach for me. I mean, sometimes, you know, like I, I, I it's not something that I would recommend to my my close friends. Um, but he uh, seems to be um, at ease with that approach, and um, I think that if he's if someone is going to take that approach he's doing it in the the right manner.
1: Yeah, it's tough for me to say, you know, because I came from sports, uh, like for instance, ski and snowboard where you you never did that. It was, uh, pre-ride, re-ride, free-ride, where even if you had been down the mountain in that exact section before, you still took the easier line first to pre-ride it and then you re-rode it and then you would free-ride it, you know, and, uh, you know, coming to like rock climbing next, you know, on-site free soloing would be the nearest thing that I could equate to that. And there are very few people that have survived through on-site free soloing, you know, and that even has the potential to be backed off of, you know, you on-site free solo a route and you come to a move that you can't do, well, you can back down the climb and hopefully you've uh, climbed the first section in a manner that, you know, you can reverse the moves but there is absolutely no reverse in a wingsuit. So I, I don't know. you know, I'm, I'm not in his shoes, so I can't tell you like whether <laughs> whether it looks sustainable or not. <laughs> From my perspective, um, it seems it seems on the aggressive end. Um, I mean, but... I think we
0: both put it uh, fairly succinctly that he is on the sharp end of the sport at the moment and and that's what it looks like you know and uh that sharp end is a a difficult balance point sometimes
1: yeah end of the day i'm super stoked that we had him on the podcast and absolutely blown away at the amount of information that he's given us as well as uh, all of the stuff that he's done to push the sport forward so yeah you know, Congratulations to us for being able to put him on the podcast and get all of that awesome information out of him.
0: Yeah, that was cool. Um, definitely stoked on that. And uh, that sort of wraps up our episode for today. And um, yeah, looking forward to the next one.